about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. First Bible reading, Exodus 2, 11-25. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who are you, ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Hi, my name is Sam, and the second Bible reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, and that can be found on page 1204 of the Bible. The Red Bible says. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Well, good evening. Uh, My name is Mike. It's great to be with you. Happy New Year, if I haven't uh, spoken to you already. Uh, In fact, I've met most of you, but uh, I'm not a very good rememberer. Uh, I forget your stories. I forget your names. I'm very grateful for name tags which is unfortunate because tonight we're looking at remembering. Um, Despite being not a great rememberer, I've come to realize that almost everything I do is a result of what I do remember. It can be as trivial, and it's not as profound as I make it sound, it can be as trivial as as, uh, this morning I remembered I was preaching, so I got up early and kind of went through my talk so I could preach today, and I remembered it was CIG, and here I am. I remembered that... um, my coffee pour yesterday was a little slow, so I adjusted the grinder this morning. I remembered that uh, my middle child, it was his turn to get the breakfast bowl with the blue circle around it, because that's a thing in my family. We cycle through, yeah, whatever. Um, 
I recall my to-do list. I remember my to-do list, which is shaped by how I remember what my goals are for this week, uh, this month, this year. Remembering is crucial for the way we do relationships. I'm really grateful when someone says, Mike, I remembered you in my prayers. That's great stuff. Conversely, I look at my Facebook feed and see some friends having a great time and I go, I think they forgot to invite me. Or it's really important, remembering is really important in how we think of ourselves, that kind of self-talk. Maybe you're like me and kind of as you go to bed in the theatre of your mind, you review the day and you kind of remember all the things where you embarrassed yourself or that went really badly and you kind of have, that ends up being sort of negative self-talk. Otherwise, you might be kind of really upbeat and positive and you remember all the good things about the day and uh, that kind of shapes the way that you uh, think of yourself also. Remembering is powerful in how we think of ourselves, in driving what we do and how we act towards others. Of course, we are forgetful, fickle, and we will fail to remember as we should. The more profound point that I'm actually moving towards, it's not about my memory tonight, is this. Everything God does is an act of remembering. In His acts of grace and judgment towards us, He is remembering all things because He is the God that knows all things. As I was talking with uh, John Dixon last year about a great youth kind of rally he was involved in, he was sharing kind of how he used that kind of age-old illustration where kind of imagine your life is a kind of a DVD or or a movie that's been shot and everything that you've thought, uh, said and done is is displayed in this video of your whole life and subtitled so people can even see what you're thinking. And everyone's invited to come see this grand opening, the story of Mike Hastie or whoever it is. And God's invited. How do you feel about people coming to that video, that movie? Uh, A number of boys at the back sort of blurted out, I'd be stuffed. This idea that God knows all things, that He remembers all things, it's not a very comfortable idea and it kind of makes sense of when I invited my neighbour a few years ago to come along to church and we'd had some great chats about Jesus. I said, you should come along to church, I'm preaching. And he goes, there's no way I can go there, I've, I've done too much stuff. I don't want to be reminded of that. Church seems to be this place where God sort of has special vision and kind of pokes into our lives and exposes us. It's not a very good idea for us to entertain, really, is it? The idea that God is some kind of cosmic uh, observant, looking in on our lives, stalking us, guilting us into action. But what I want to show you tonight is that, yes, God is all-knowing, remembers all things, and yet He is the kind of God that we want to approach because He is loving, forgiving, gracious, and just. The key to understanding how God remembers all things, and how that makes us uneasy, and how He loves us still, is actually found in that first passage that was read to us from Exodus uh, chapter 2. And it's the story of Moses. Now, when you remember Moses, you might be thinking, oh, Moses is that great kind of leader uh, of Israel who led uh, his God's people out of Egypt. But do you remember the first part of the story, the kind of the underbelly side of Moses, uh, where in a rash sense of justice, he whacks a guy, uh, buries him in the sand, and then uh, does the runner. When, uh, When God's people who are fighting and starting to grumble are crying out to God, How should God remember that whole sequence of events? God could easily say to Israel, I remember you. 
you guys are grumblers, you don't trust me. He could look at Moses and say, I remember what you did last summer. But instead, what did we read at the end of that passage? God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham. When God remembers in his response towards us, he particularly remembers his covenant. Now, you might be zoning out a bit, I'll just use a really religious word because we don't use the word covenant much outside of church. The idea of covenant is the idea of partnership. And in this context, God has made a number of key covenants with his people. He first made the covenant to Noah, where after kind of the flood, God covenanted with Noah saying, I will not destroy humanity again, no matter what. And I'm going to give you a sign, it's a rainbow in the sky, no conditions. This is just a no, an unconditional covenant I'm going to make. That's a great covenant. I want to be with a God who's for me and it's not going to destroy me. Secondly, he makes a covenant with Abraham. Part of the promises he makes to Abraham, that Abraham will be a blessing to all nations, that he'll become the seed of a great nation and he'll see land for that nation. And things are looking kind of good for that nation for a while. Abraham has kids where he had no kids. Uh, his kids have kids. And then they become a great nation until they're found in the slavery of Egypt. And it's not looking so good any, anymore. And the groans of God's people come before God. And as God approaches his people, as he considers them, he could have remembered all kinds of things because he knows all things. But he particularly remembered his covenant. And here lies the tension for the whole Old Testament drama. How is God going to continue to remember his covenant to bless his people while he also remembers and knows all of their failures? And it's a tension that we live in too, is it not? As God looks upon us in Christ, and yet he also sees everything that we do, all of our failures, all the things we don't want others or him to see. How does God resolve that tension? How does God remember these things in tension. I think the crux of the issue is in how God forgives. And there's something that I want to explore in the middle part of this talk. What does it mean for God to forgive? As I've been talking with people today, they're kind of like, it's easy, right? You kind of forgive and forget. And that would be a way, perhaps, for God to remember his covenant love for us and just to forget about all the bad stuff and just kind of wipe it off. But what, what does that look like? So, for instance, if Dan steals, I don't know, a pencil of mine, um, like he may sometimes, and then he comes up to me and says, Mike, I'm very sorry for the pencil I stole. I say, forget about it. Don't worry about it. That's a really trivial issue. What about where the injustice is greater? Is forgetting about it okay? And what does it look like for God to forget? Like, how does the all-knowing, all-remembering God forget? What kind of mind trick is that? Of course, you might be recalling, um, as you play along in the audience, Isaiah 43, a great verse, people might know. Uh, I, even I, says God, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. That sounds like God is forgetting. It sounds like God forgets the sins and walks away. But I think there's more to this. When God says he remembers our sins no more, he knows our sins, but he is choosing to not remember the relational consequence of those sins. Christians have been pondering how to make sense of this forgiveness for a long time. If we went back a couple of hundred years uh, to this guy, Martin Luther, a key part of the Reformation, he says this, 
Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and new beginning. It is lifting, it is the lifting of a burden or the cancelling of a debt. God's not forgetting what we've done. He's choosing to let go of the debt before us. He's choosing to remove the barrier that we've created. He's choosing to forget the consequences of our sin for the sake of reconciliation. And the only way that he can do that justly is to rewrite that covenant in the blood of Christ, who forgives us and washes away our sins. But the thing is, forgiveness has more to do with remembering than forgetting. Forgiveness has more to do with remembering than forgetting. As God remembers our sin, names it, and forgives us all the same. As you think about practicing this in our own relationships, in our own walk in life, this truly is superior to the alternatives of forgetting about it and just burying the hatchet, or kind of um, having a little black book where you write down and remember all the things that people have done against you and you want to hold it against them, or kind of practicing some kind of sense of justice that ends up in cycles of violence. And you see Moses, who whacks that Egyptian and shoves him in the sand and then finds his uh, Hebrew brothers fighting and saying, well, you did that. And I see the same cycle of violence in my kids who kind of, he kicked me, he kicked me. It just kind of escalates, right? I see the same cycle of violence in my own heart as I want revenge for myself. God shows us a different way of remembering, of being able to name the issue, of being able to bring it into the light, not forgetting about it, by bringing the issue into the light and saying, I am not going to hold that against you, even though you have wronged me. It is remembering and forgiving. And the goal is that we would be reconciled, that we would be able to covenant, to partner around this issue and work together. Two parties that have been broken apart by a sin, now coming together, looking at, naming the issue, not holding it against them and working together with it. As I've been thinking about what this looks like in practice, I was reminded of Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop in South Africa, and his work um, in this great book that he's written, No Future Without Forgiveness. He was involved in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, who actually offered amnesty uh, to perpetrators of violence uh, under the apartheid regime. And we're not talking about a commission set up to kind of practice some kind of, you know, like, you know, you've done a misdemeanor, you're going to get a little fine and we'll move on. We are talking about a commission that was set up to, us to uh, work through systemic injustice. How do you rebuild a country that's so broken so deeply? And yet in this commission, shaped by the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus, they actually offered amnesty from prosecution to perpetrators. Why would they do that? Because when you realize that there is no fear of condemnation, when you realize there's a possibility that you could actually reconcile, do you not actually put the truth on the table? Do you not put the sin before so that both parties can look at it and work together on it? I mean, it's almost kind of idealistic, but here we have, in the grossest circumstances, a commission setting up this very idea, seeking 
reconciliation, seeking to rebuild a country. Tudu writes in this book, it is important to remember so that we should not let such atrocities happen again. It means taking what happened seriously and not minimizing it, drawing out the sting in the memory that threatens to poison our entire existence. Think about this in in marriages, in in friendships, in, in work relationships. This idea that we could actually approach the issue that's caused relational breakdown, that's caused injustice, that caused grief, to be able to offer forgiveness, to not hold it against that person so that you might work together on how to move forward in light of that issue, that sin. I'll tell you what, as I seek, as I'm called to practice this, to love my enemy, I come back to the cross and I go, there is no way I could do this apart from Christ empowering me, apart from going back to Him and seeing what He has done for me. Many of us have grown up in Christian families, um, or have known the gospel for a long time, and you're like, oh, forgiveness of sins, yeah, I know about that, I've known that for a long time. But every time we are called to practice it, is it not ripping, is it not costly to be able to let go of that thing that you can hold against that person, that you might forgive them for the sake of naming it and walking together, reconciling on that issue? And there is no fear as we approach our Heavenly Father, knowing the the dark things that live in the crevices of our heart. Do we not desire to actually bring those out, to bring them out into the light of our great God? Knowing there is no fear of condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, that we might have His work done in us to make us more like Him and to bring reconciliation in every part of our life. This, uh, this week, we uh, gave Reconsider a go, and before a couple people turned up, um, we were chatting among ourselves as to how our church might do mission. And the heart of a church on mission is not going to be a pastor saying, you should do mission. It's not going to be in some kind of program or system or five-step plan. It's going to be in celebrating what we have in Christ. It's going to be, as we celebrate that, as we, as we talk about that, with our Christian friends, our brothers and sisters, it's going to be wanting that same thing for those around us. And as we look at Newtown and Erskineville around, we're going to want for them what we have found, the joy we have in Christ. And as we soak on the goodness of being forgiven, of being able to bring out the dark things of our heart into the light of Christ without fear of condemnation and be forgiven and be transformed... Whatever your story is, whatever you have done, how good is God? As we practice the way that God has related to us in the relationships around us, as we experience this transformed life, the good life, do we not rejoice? And how incredible should the church be as it's forged in God's knowing? We are not a people who come together because we have a common interest in Jesus. We all know Jesus. No, God knows us. That's what forges us together. We are not a people that have to pretend to be religious because that's what God likes. 
We do not have to be ashamed. We are known all the way down. God remembers all. And when you come before him, forgives. We are a people who, like Moses, despite our failings, are written into the book of life. And as God looks back on salvation history, our stories are going to be part of God's great story. And it's so exciting to see Moses, this kind of, this broken character, how beautifully he is woven into the story of God's salvation for his people. And how great will it be that our own stories will be written into the story of God's salvation for all people. As I finish up, I was um, looking at what Peter had to say in our last second reading to his, uh, his readers. And he says, I know you are firmly established in the truth. I know you know this stuff. And yet he writes, so I will always remind you. How boring is that when people remind you stuff you already know? Like my parents are always reminding me of stuff. I know, Dad, you told me. So why is Peter saying, I will always remind you about that stuff you already know? Why am I reminding you about this if you already know about forgiveness of sins? It's funny how we so quickly intellectualize things and how slow we are at heart to come to the truths and experiencing the reconciliation on offer. Just in this last year, I can think of one example, and I've been a Christian for a long time, where I wronged someone I knew quite well. I'm kind of one of those people that spreads across many sort of shallower relationships. My wife's kind of much more narrow and kind of goes deeper with people. But I do have a few special kind of friends in my life that I care for deeply, and I wronged one of them. And as I thought about that, I mean, it was a relatively secret sin, and um, I thought, well, you know, forgiveness of sins, you know, it's all good. I know about that. God forgives me. But because I've been reminded through the years on what God has done and what he calls me to, I've been reminded through others preaching through my own quiet times, through small groups, and all the things we do at church to remind us that we might embody the truth of the gospel. God did a work in me, and he gave me the courage to actually name that sin before God and before this person. And that is a scary thing when you actually approach someone and say, I know I've done something, I'm going to name it, I'm going to remember it, and bring it before you, that we might work on that together. And the fear there, of course, is that that person might slap it back in your face and hold it against you. We know that God won't do that because there's no condemnation in Christ, but yet I'm called to practice the kind of forgiveness and love that God's shown me. The richness I now have in that relationship, because of what I did in confessing my failures, is so much more beautiful. God truly does call us to the good, full life that he's intended us. Would we marvel at what God has given us in the forgiveness of sins as he remembers, as he knows us and loves us all the same? Would we live out this truth? Would we practice it among others? Would we remind each other of all that we have in Christ? Let me pray. Father, we come before you confident and joyful, not because of who we are, in fact, in spite of who we are, but because you are loving, gracious, forgiving. And Father, whatever's going on in our hearts right now, whatever you've conjured up in our minds and our hearts, Father, would you help us to bring everything out into the light, that we would be a kind of 
people that images Christ, that reflects the beauty of your kingdom? Would we experience this as a church? And would we live daily in the good life, the beautiful life you have called us to, in the forgiveness of sins and the transformation through your spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.